Our sermon is from Genesis chapter 24. Um, I invite you to either turn there in your Bible or it'll be on the screen. A lot of text to get through this morning. Um, And so my apologies if this goes a little long, but we'll try to get through it as as fast as we can. Um, 67 verses, I think. Uh, So we're... Because of time, we're not going to read the whole thing. We'll just kind of read as we go. Um, I don't know if anybody else here has seen... My my and Penny's favorite um, Christmas movie is called The Nativity Story. Has anybody seen The Nativity Okay. So, um, and my favorite scene in that movie has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. Um, but um, it's my favorite scene in the movie is where... Uh, Joseph and Mary's father are standing in their house, and um, or in, in in Mary's father's house, and Mary comes in like from the field, and um, and she she walks in the doorway and sees them standing there staring at her, and uh, and just you know is just kind of taken aback, and she she kind of stops as soon as she comes in the doorway she just stops and she's looking at them and they're looking at her. And her father does this. He goes, Mary. And then he looks over and says, You know Joseph. You will be his wife. Um, so, you know, and that was, that was it. And then he gives her, um, he, he, he pours this wine, which I guess was might be kind of the part of the betrothal, into a cup and gives it to Joseph. And, of course, this is just a, a, an embellishment, a dramatic, you know, there's, Scripture doesn't tell us that it happened this way, but a lot of marriages did happen that way uh, back then. They're called arranged marriages. And so, um, you know, few things may be more foreign to our current culture, the time and place in which, which we live, than the idea of an arranged marriage. An idea that a father would choose a wife for his son or a husband for his daughter. Um, and so, you know, I just wondered, you know, what that would have been like. To, to be Mary and to come in and just have your father say, this is the guy you're going to marry. <laughs> um, and so that's what our sermon is about this morning, is about the arranged marriage of Isaac and Rebecca. And we're going to see some different things. We're going to see how the coming about of this union displays the providence of God. We've been talking about the Abrahamic covenant, you know, in the last few chapters of Genesis, how God said to Abraham, leave your, your family and uh, your father's house and go, and I will make you a great nation. I'll make you a blessing, and you'll be a blessing. And um, so we're going to see how this is part of fulfilling that. Um, this passage has a lot to tell us about marriage and relationships, about courtship. And then, ulti- and then finally, how we're going to see how this um, story points to the ultimate marriage, which is of Jesus and his church, the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. So like I said, this passage is long. We'll just read as we go. Um, but the thing I want us to see throughout this story is this is God's story. And, and the characters in it, just they, they play their part. And in the same way, we are part of God's story, and we're privileged to, to play a part in it. But before we start, let's, uh, let's ask God's blessing on our time together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for everything that your word teaches us. We thank you um, 
for your grace and the work of your spirit in our lives. And we, we just pray that you would bless this time. We pray that you would speak. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to each heart. Each one of us is in a different place, wrestling with different things. And only you know, that only you know about, Lord. And so I pray that you would just bless our time here together this morning and use this to uh, build your people, um, to, to mold us and shape us into the likeness of Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. Excuse me one second. I'm just going to grab my water bottle. Get the, because as you can see, a lot of text, right? <laughs> that fills up the whole screen. Um, so before we get into the text, and this is, we'll just leave this up, but before we start reading Genesis 24, there's something in, important that happens in the chapter before, uh, chapter 23, Genesis 23, that I want to note just quickly. And, um, and that's the death of Sarah, Abraham's wife, and everything that happens with that. So um, Sarah, Abraham's wife, dies in, in Genesis 23, and uh, Abraham has to find a place to bury her. And he ends up buying a field from a man named Ephron the Hittite in the land of Canaan in order to bury her there. And this is significant not only because, you know, Abraham's just lost his wife, Isaac has just lost his mother, obviously it's significant in that way, but it's also significant because this, is, this happens in the land of Canaan, and Abraham purchases this land to bury Sarah in the land of Canaan. And Canaan is the land that God has promised to give to Abraham. So we can see that even while Abraham is burying his wife, he's simultaneously kind of placing a stake in the land that God has promised to give him and to his descendants. And so we can see God's plan coming to pass, even as something as sad and and as tragic as the, the death of Abraham's wife. But now Abraham has a dilemma. On one hand, Isaac is supposed to inherit the land of Canaan, right, per the promise of God. And so Isaac needs to stay in that land. But then on the other hand, in order to have descendants, you have to have children. And in order to have children, you have to have a wife, right? And Isaac doesn't have a wife. Um, and so as, and as we'll see in a minute, Abraham does not want his son Isaac to marry a pagan Canaanite woman. And so Abraham uh, charges his servant to find a wife for Isaac from Abraham's relatives back in Mesopotamia. So I'm just going to read the first uh, for, 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 yeah, excuse me, four verses. Um, my Bible is NASB, so it might be slightly different than what you see on the screen, but it should be, should be able to get it. Uh, Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. So Abraham makes his servant swear, makes him take an oath that he will not allow Isaac to marry a foreign, pagan, idolatrous woman from among their neighbors. Abraham seems to be a lot more concerned with the character and the religious worldview 
of Isaac's future wife than anything else. I mean, you know, think about it. There were probably lots of beautiful Canaanite women, lots of maybe rich, prominent uh, Canaanite women and popular Canaanite women that Isaac could have married. But Abraham and presumably Isaac as well are not interested in that. And so there's much to learn here about um, what we should look for and what we should teach our children to look for in a future spouse. And, and also just the fact that, that parents, parents should be involved in um, helping, to, helping their kids find the right spouse. Uh, and helping their, teaching their kids and exhorting their kids and, and helping them to find the right person. Um, and so as, uh, as Ben and I were talking about this sermon, I want you to know this is an exhortation that comes straight from your lead pastor. So it's not, not from me. <laughs> from me, it's from him. But uh, he said this, he said, Parents, it is your job to make sure your kid marries well. You are called to disciple your kids. You're, so, in other words, like our job as parents is not just to simply get your kids, get your kid to his or her sixteenth birthday, give them the keys to the car, and say good luck. If you think about how upside down we can, um, a lot of people think about parenting. A lot of times, they can put lots of of time and money and effort in making sure their kids get, get a good education, right? They have to go to the right school, they get the right kind of education so they can get a good job. And whatever job they get, how long might they spend at that job? You know, maybe maybe a year, maybe more, maybe 10 years. I mean, maybe even 20 or 30 years they might spend their whole uh life in uh, you know, their working life in the same job. But still compare that to how little time is often spent talking about and thinking through and teaching and guiding our kids about who they're going to spend the rest of their life with. This is a, this is a really big deal. Marriage is a really, really big deal. And for some reason in our culture, we kind of, uh, like I said, the, the concept of, a, of a, an arranged marriage or that parents would have say in who their son or daughter marries is kind of foreign to us. And I think a lot of that is just due to just the culture that we live in. We have this just kind of completely romantic idea about and, and, and individualism, right? We're very individualistic in American culture and Western culture. And so for some reason, we, we you know, most parents, if you had kids growing up, you would, you would certainly feel free to say in the elementary or middle school years, uh, I don't want you hanging out with that person. All right, you know, I don't want you hanging out with that friend. That, 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 that guy's a bad influence. That girl's going to be a bad influence on you. But then for some reason, parents can tend to feel handcuffed to say, I don't want you marrying that person. But, but marriage should be a family, uh, a family thing. It should involve not just, not just the, um, you know, the, um, husband or wife, you know, proposed husband or wife. Um, boyfriend, girlfriend, it's not just, it shouldn't just be up to them. It should, they, they should invite the counsel of their parents and those who care about them. Um, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are warnings against marrying a person who does not worship the same God that you worship. Uh, you know, God talks about this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, gives commandment through Moses saying, You shall not intermarry with them, talking about the pagan nations around them, for they would turn away your sons and daughters from following me 
to serve other gods. And and this is not about, um, you know, like God's not forbidding like interracial marriage or anything like that. This is more about, this is about worldview. This is about, this is about fundamentally what you believe about God and about people. Uh, this comes down to your worldview. And so the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians six fourteen a similar thing, which this verse, by the way, applies to more than just uh, marriage, but it's often quoted when talking about marriage. Um, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? There's no more intimate partnership. There's no closer partnership than a husband and a wife, than, than marriage. Then, you know, the two shall become one flesh. And so this is about worldview. This is, you know, faith, if it is genuine, it determines the, the course and direction of a person's life. If a person's faith does not do that, then it's not genuine faith. So if you're a Christian, you should have no interest in pursuing a relationship that leads to marriage with a person of the opposite sex who is not a Christian because you have two completely different worldviews. And that's just, you know, it's just asking for problems. So let's go on to verses 5 through 9. In verses 5 through 9, we see um, another example of Abraham's faith. It says, The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me back to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? And then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there. And so the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So in verses 5 through 9, we see another display of Abraham's faith in his gracious, covenant-keeping God. The servant says, what if the woman is not willing to follow me? Should I take her back? Abraham says, no, uh, you know, don't do that. And he says... The God who spoke to me, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and told me, to your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and, and you will take, my, take a wife from my son from there. So notice what Abraham is saying here and what, what his faith is rooted in. Basically, he's saying to his servant, I know this God. I know my God. He is faithful. He made a promise to me. And he keeps his promises. He provides. I mean, the last sermon that, that Ben preached was from Genesis 22, right? That God provides. God provided a sacrifice in the place of Isaac. Um, and so, just a quick illustration from one of my favorite preachers about this. Talking about faith and walking by faith. He told a story about a friend of his um, who he had worked with as a missionary for many, many years. And they developed a really close bond, you know, just best friends. And he said, if my friend were to come into this room right now, and just out of the blue and say, I need the keys to your, your brand new Jeep right now. I'd just say, sure, and hand him the keys. 
And somebody might see that and they would say, but, but you don't know where he's taking it. <laughs> you, don't know what, how, you, know, you don't know what he's going to do with it. You don't, you don't know how long he's going to have it. How can you just give him the keys to your, your brand new Jeep? And he said, and I, and I would tell them, I don't need to know what he plans to do with it or where he plans to take it because I know him. I know him. And that's all I need to know. That's what Abraham is saying here. That's what it's like walking by faith in the Lord. I don't need to know what's next. It's nice to. Sometimes I wish I did. Uh, but I, I really don't need to know all the steps or how it's going to turn out. I don't, know how, I don't need to know how my life is going to turn out. I don't need to know all of that if I know him. And I know that, I know that he's good. I know that he's great and that he's good. I know that he loves me. I don't need to know the future if I know the one who holds it. I know him, and that's all I need. Um, you guys probably, some of you guys I'm sure like uh, Casting Crowns or have heard the, uh, the band Casting Crowns. They're one of my wife's uh, favorite bands. And they have a song, that, uh, the lyrics in part of the song says, If your eyes are on the storm, you'll wonder if I love you still. But if your eyes are on the cross, you know, you'll know I always have and I always will. The knowledge of God, knowing who God is, and that he, you know, how he demonstrated his love for us. Um, that's what it's walking by faith is. It's not knowing the steps. It's not knowing the path. You don't need to know the path if you know the one uh, who, who, who keeps you, who keeps your soul and keeps your path. Uh, and so we see that the servant obeys in verses 10 through 27. Again, a lot of text. Here we go. Uh, starting in verse 10. Then the, the servant uh, took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things in its masters, of his masters in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink. And who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels in gold and said, Whose daughter are you? 
Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. And so in verse 10, we see uh, God's sovereign plan continuing to play out like through the obedience of Abraham's servant. The, the servant obeys and goes, right? The servant takes his master's camels and he goes. He makes the camels kneel down, uh, you know, outside by the, by the well. Well, lots of expensive gifts, carrying lots of expensive gifts to Isaac's future bride as part of the marriage agreement. And then in verses 12 to 21, we see the, you know, the servant asking for a sign from God, asking for help, asking for guidance. And we see that God hears him and God answers him. I mean, you know, the, the prayer barely even leaves the servant's lips or it might even just be his thoughts. Um, when he sees this beautiful young girl with a jar on her shoulder who goes down to the spring to fill it up and comes back up and he runs to meet her and exactly it says exactly what he told God he would say. Please let me drink a little water from your jar. And Rebecca replies exactly in the way the, the servant asked God that she would which is, you know, just pretty amazing. Um, and she says, drink, my Lord. And then he's, he, and she says, I will draw for your camels also. And then she goes and does just, just that. I, uh, I looked this up online. I Googled it. And I discovered that a thirsty camel can drink up to 30 gallons of water in 15 minutes. So... Don't miss this. This is no, this is no like arbitrary sign or test uh, on the servant's part. This is a, a test of character, right? And this is no small kindness on Rebecca's part. This is not, you know, uh, like handing him a burger or, you know, um, or, or, or giving him a, a thank you or giving him a card or a welcome card or anything like that. This is no small feat. This is a lot of work. I mean, just do the math. Uh, 30 gallons per camel, and there are 10 camels. That's 300 gallons of water. I mean, I don't know how much her bucket or her jar held, but this was a lot of work to somebody that she had never even met. That she, She's just you know, running to, make, to fill up the trough for all of the camels. Um, and so this servant was looking for an industrious hospitable, godly woman, and he obviously found one in Rebecca. Um, you know, some homework, if you want to do some homework, uh, read Proverbs 31. That's what I, you know, that's what I thought of when I read this, this passage, is what Rebecca reminds me of here. Um, Proverbs 31, the last verse, one of the last verses, uh, uh, verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So the servant knows that Rebecca will make a, a good wife for Isaac, not because she's a hottie, not because her e harmony profile matches his, 
Uh, not because they share some of the same hobbies, but because Rebecca exhibits godly character. She's humble and generous with a heart to serve. And then again, you know, notice that, that Isaac is not even the one making this evaluation. Her, her, his, uh, his father's servant is. Again, back to this idea, I think Christians should reject this worldly idea of our culture that when two people are dating, that, that they and they alone are the only ones that can evaluate their relationship and whether or not that relationship to, to, should lead to marriage. I think you know, Christians should reject that idea. Being, being in love is a wonderful thing. But when you're in love, you are not thinking clearly. I mean, amen? Amen, somebody. When you're in love, you are not thinking clearly. And so that's why Christian young men and women should invite the counsel of their parents and others, like other church members, elders, you know, when it comes to preparing for marriage. That's why premarital counseling is a really, really good idea. Things like that. And so we see God's plan continue to unfold. Uh, God hears the prayer of Abraham's servant, causes him to notice Rebecca at exactly the right time, and Rebecca happens to say the exact, exactly the right thing at exactly the right time. Uh, and so I'm going to read uh, verses... Well, actually, I just already read verses 22 to 27, but just kind of recap. Um, you know, the servant gives her these, um, this gold ring, these, these two bracelets. And, um, and so what I want us to notice is that this, is, this whole story... It's not coincidence, obviously, right? This is not coincidence. But nor is it some kind of fatalistic determinism, right? Um, so, and, and there's a lot in this servant that we should notice that we should, should imitate. We should imitate this servant's faith and perseverance. When we don't know what step we should take next, the first thing to do is to pray, and to ask God for guidance. Of course, there are wrong ways to ask for signs and things like that. Like I think of the Pharisees asking for signs from Jesus. And really it was just to justify their, their unbelief. Or uh, we think of uh, you know, Gideon who, you know, God, God sends an angel to tell him what to do. And he's like, are you sure? Let me put this fleece out just to be sure. Let me put it out again just to be really, really sure. Uh, you know, and so there are, there are wrong ways to ask God for signs and for guidance, but there are right ways, which I think is the way that the servant did, that we should, um, you know, when, when we need guidance, we should feel free to ask God for guidance in our lives and then expect him to answer and then thank him when he does, just as the servant did in verse 27. You know, he says, blessed be the Lord. He's worshiping God here. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and truth toward my master. And so he doesn't fail to thank God for just the blessing of God's guidance. And, and nor should we fail to thank God for the blessings, the everyday blessings, as well as the big, the big blessings and the guidance in our lives. And so in, in verses um, 28 to 49, we'll look, try to run through those quickly next. Uh, we um, meet Laban for the first time, and uh, we see uh, Laban's um, hospitality and the, the servant's proposal. I'm just going to read that quickly. Uh, then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. 
Now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. And uh, when he saw the ring and the bracelets on, her, on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, saying, This is what the man said to me, he went uh, to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside, since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Uh, so the man entered the house, and Laban unloaded the camels, and gave straw and feed to the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the feet of the men who were with him. But when food was set before him to eat, he, talking about the servant, said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And so, just some, some things to notice about Laban here. This is our first introduction to Laban, Rebekah's brother. We're going to learn later in Genesis from Laban's interactions with Isaac's son Jacob that Laban is not exactly what you would call a godly uh, character at, at all. But he kind of appears to be, right? In these first few verses, we see that he appears to be uh, generous and, uh, and, and hospitable, right? But... I think when we look a little closer, we might be able to say, eh, not, not so sure. Um, if, we, if we look closely, again, back to verse 28, uh, or uh, 29, you know, Laban, or I'm sorry, verse 30. When, when he saw the ring, so Laban sees a ring, a gold ring, which was probably in Rebekah's nose, and, uh, and the, the bracelets on her wrist, weighing 10 shekels of gold apiece. And, uh, and when he heard the words of Rebekah, and he, you know, he knows that this guy's got camels with a bunch of expensive gifts. It's like you can all, you, you're getting the picture here? You, get, you see, Laban sees all this stuff and he comes out and says, Come in, you who are blessed of the Lord. Right? And, uh, and so we see that, you know, at first glance, this might appear to be uh, godly generosity, but I think if we look a little closer, Laban sees the ring and the bracelets and everything. You know, here's what the servant had told Rebecca. And um, so Rebecca's brother Laban seems to love the God of Abraham as long as that God is lining his pockets. And I think there's a warning here. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6, it reminded me of, of what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Um, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then even the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If, if religion to you is a matter of worldly benefits, a matter of keeping up appearances, then Jesus said that the light, what you think is light is actually darkness. Right? How dark your soul must be. And he says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. And so then, you know, in verse 33, um, the food is set before him. And the servant says, I won't eat until I'll say, I say what I have to say. And so notice the contrast here. The contrast between Laban and between this servant, right? Laban sees all the stuff. He says, come in, you are a blessed, blessed of the Lord. Uh, the servant has food set before him. 
And he, the servant's like, I'm not even interested in eating until I have done what I've been set out to do. Right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and, and all of these things will be added to you. We see that, the, you know, the heart of the servant, is that he has, just has this godly character of, um, it's more important that I complete what I was sent out to do than even to eat. I mean, I'm sure he was hungry. They've been on a, a, a long journey. But he says, I'm not going to eat until I've made this proposal. And so Laban says, speak on. And so the servant says, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. And you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give you to her, you will be free from my oath. And he says, And I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And who will say, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman, notice this phrase, whom the Lord has appointed. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I finish speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. And she quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. And so I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milka bore to him. So I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. So again, this is a vivid picture of God's sovereign grace and faith-filled human obedience working at the same time to accomplish God's purposes. As I said earlier, God is sovereign. We believe that, right? That God is sovereign and He will accomplish His desire and no one can thwart His plans. And yet, at the same time, those plans and purposes include human initiative, human choices, God has, has chosen to use his people to ac accomplish his plans. God chose Rebecca to be Isaac's wife, right? God chose this servant and God sent his angel 
to be with him. And, uh, and God heard and answered the servant's prayers, and God guided him to Rebekah and her family. And yet at the same time, the servant chose to obey his master, Abraham, and, and, and the servant was the one who actually loaded all the camels, and the servant traveled the many miles, and the servant stopped at the well, and the servant prayed for guidance, and asked Rebekah for water, and, and the servant gave her the gold rings and bracelets, and now the servant has made the marriage proposal. So again, you know, these two things working together at the same time. It's God's story, God's plan, God's purpose, and all the characters play a part in it. And so we shouldn't um, fall prey to hyper-Calvinism, you know, a, a fatalistic determinism that can uh, make us think that, well, God is sovereign and he's just going to do you know, whatever he wants. No, you cannot bear fruit for God by being lazy or idle. And so don't think that God's sovereignty nullifies your duty to serve him and his church because it doesn't nullify it in the least. And then uh, lastly, in uh, verses 50 to 67, a lot of text. We'll see if we can get through it here. Um, Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So even Laban and Bethuel uh, recognize that this is God's will. Defying the will of Almighty God is probably not a good idea. Um, this is God's story, right? And this is this is God's will for their lives. Um, and in the same way, our lives belong to Him as well. It's not up to us to make sure our lives turn out the way that we want. It's up to us to trust in God and to keep our eyes on Him and follow Him. And so when Abraham's servant uh, heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Uh, Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. And they said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah and their, and their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. And thus the servant took Rebekah and went on his way. So, again, just something we can glean from some of these verses that uh, like going back to what I said before, life-changing decisions about, not just about marriage, but about moving, about jobs, college, joining a church, and even just relationships in general are best made in community. We see um, you know, them talking and calling Rebecca in 
ask her if she's willing to go. This is a big decision. This is a really, a, a really big thing. Rebecca's going to a place. Rebecca's going to a place that she's never been before. Um, again, you know, we tend to be very individualistic, even in our most important decisions. And I think the Bible would tell us that that's extremely foolish. Uh, Proverbs twenty eight twenty six says, "He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely." How do you walk wisely? You walk, you know, according to Scripture and according to godly counsel. He who walks wisely will be delivered. And in verse 58, we see uh, Rebecca's faith. Here she is being asked to leave everything that she knows. She's being asked to leave her, her home, her family, to travel to a strange land, to meet a man, a strange man that she's never met before, she's never even seen before, in order to marry him. What, what possibly could convince a person to agree to something like that? And I, I think the only answer is faith, just a, a trust that uh, that this is God's plan. As it was already said, you know, they, they said that this thing is from the Lord. And so um, Rebecca trusted in God. And then last verses, verses 62 to 67. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Uh, then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her and so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death so in this historical account of the arranged marriage of Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 24 we see more than I I think uh, we see a foreshadowing a, a type we see a picture of a greater marriage and that's the last thing I want to talk about is the, the greater marriage of Christ and his bride, the, the church. Um, in the same way that Abraham you know, chose to get a bride for his son Isaac, God the Father has chosen and predestined and elect people to be a bride for his beloved son. Ephesians 1, 5-6 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In the same way that Isaac purchases Rebekah as his wife, he sends all these gifts, ten camels with all kinds of expensive gifts. Isaac purchases Rebekah as his wife at, at great cost to himself. Jesus Christ indeed purchased his bride at an even greater cost to himself it cost him his life it cost him his the shedding of his precious blood ephesians 1 7 in him in jesus we have redemption through his through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us in second corinthians 8 9 paul says for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you by his poverty 
might become rich. And then finally, the servant uh, typifies or pictures uh, the Holy Spirit. Abraham kind of pictures God the Father. If Isaac uh, typifies or, or pictures uh, God the Son in this story, we see that this servant typifies or pictures the Holy Spirit. The servant goes and finds Rebekah, the one that's been chosen, and lays the proposal before her. He speaks not about himself, but about his masters, Abraham and Isaac, and their glory and, and, and their offer to make Rebekah Isaac's wife. But in order to be Isaac's wife, Rebekah has to leave her entire world behind and start a new life with her husband. She has to leave everything that she's known and, and go and be joined to her husband. And, and, and even the 10 days, you know, not 10 days from now, they try to say, you know, let her stay 10 days. No, not 10 days from now, but now, now is the time to come. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit finds us and speaks not of himself, but of Christ and, and his beauty and his eternal glory and his unspeakable love in the gospel. When we hear the gospel, when we, when we understand the gospel, the Holy Spirit lays the proposal before us. Here's the proposal. Leave it all behind. Leave your sin and selfishness, your pride, your so-called good works, your love of this world, the lust of your flesh, the lust of your eyes, the desire to keep your life, leave it all behind and come. Come, be joined to another. Even to Him who was raised from the dead, Paul says in Romans 7, in order that you might have eternal life and bear fruit for God. And behold, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. So today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. And like the, the marriage of, of Isaac and Rebekah was consummated thousands of years ago, the marriage of Christ and His bride, the church, will also be consummated at the end of history. And she will be presented to Him as a pure, radiant, spotless bride, having been washed and cleansed by His blood. And that is what we remember and what we proclaim when we observe communion. And so I'm going to read a, a passage and just kind of give an exhortation. And then we're going to take communion together. If you're a Christian, uh, if, and we invite you to take communion with us. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, then we would invite you to take communion. There are elements here in these two little baskets right in front of me. We invite you, to, um, as I play this last song, to come up and to um, take communion uh, with us this morning. Um, so I just want to read these verses from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, starting in verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then Paul gives a warning that we don't 
uh, talk about, I don't think, often enough. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Again, if, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, we would invite you to take communion. Um, well, I would also like to exhort you to not take this lightly. Of course, there are no perfect Christians. It's the grace on uh, it's the grace of Christ on which we stand. It's not our performance on which we stand. But at the same time, don't come to the Lord's table to keep up appearances if you're remaining unrepentant. If there's a sin pattern in your life that you're not willing to turn from, talk to someone, pray with someone. Um, and so again, this this exhortation is not it's not talking about perfection. But it is warning us against coming to the Lord's table unrepentant. Uh, and, and if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then we would advise you to not take communion. Instead, as Ben always says, we would invite you to take Christ. Uh, we would invite you to turn from your sin and believe in the gospel. That Jesus, though he was rich, he became poor. That he lived the perfect life that that you and I should have lived, and he died to take the punishment that sinners like you and I deserve. And, and if you're willing to believe on him, and if you're willing to leave it all behind, to surrender your life to him, then he will freely forgive you. He will freely forgive you. He offers you uh, the, the riches of his grace, and there is no cost. Um, he has done it all. He's, he has done it all. So I'm going to pray and then uh, play a song and, uh, and then we'll, we'll take communion together. Father, I thank you for this story of uh, Isaac and Rebecca. And it's, it's more than just their story. It's your story. It's about your plan. And in the same way, our lives are more about more than just our story. It's about how our story fits into your story, fits into your plan. And I pray, Lord, that we uh, could fix our eyes on you and submit to your will rather than seeking to control our own lives. Lord, uh, this is your world and we are your people. And Lord Jesus, you have bought us with your own precious blood. And so, Lord, we, we surrender. We surrender our lives to your revealed will. We trust that you are sovereign and that you will provide for all our needs. And we also believe, we are convicted, Lord, that it is our duty and our responsibility, and not just that, but our privilege and our joy to do your will as revealed in your word. To rejoice in living our lives, not for ourselves, but the, for the one who died and rose again on our behalf. And, and so, Lord, we, uh, we worship you. Amen.